Hello, this is Steven. And this is Sasha. And this is Shut Up, I Love It. A podcast where our guests come on to champion a part of pop culture that's either underrated and or underappreciated. Boy, joining us today, he's an actor, writer, improviser, born and raised in Oklahoma City. He studied journalism at the University of Missouri and... Now this is really something. He was the body double on the first Human Centipede poster. Welcome, Chase McCown. You nailed it. I did? Yes. Oh my God. This has been a challenge for me in this podcast to try and say name. people's names. Everyone's last. Pretty much anytime Sasha introduces a guest, she says it and then immediately questions whether she said it correctly. Mine, I don't blame you. Well, it's not that hard, right? Well, but I grew up in Oklahoma, and so even though phonetically it would be McCown, everyone, including my parents, says McCowan. Oh, including your parents. Oh, especially my parents. Oh, wow. What yes. did I do? You said McCown. McCown. All right. Phonetically, so I... perfect. Okay. Yeah. And that's the, way you. You, that's the way you prefer it. I do. It's a great sign of disrespect if people ever get it wrong. <laughs> but is it a sign of disrespect to your parents that you say it differently from them? Oh, never mind. I stand corrected. <laughs> I we both. I think Stephen met Chase's parents briefly. Yeah. Have I met your parents? When you did that improv show where it was my team and your team and that's it, my parents were there. <laughs> and like they other, were the only audience. <laughs> and other right. family, maybe your sister. My sister and my nephew, who couldn't have been less interested in being there. <laughs> I remember like looking at them and being like, "This is like the nicest, best-looking family I've met." Ever. I, they were good audience members. They were, they were. And that was one of the worst sets of improv I've ever done. <laughs> I don't remember that. But hey, oh. I guess we all get self-conscious in front of our parents. I mean, I couldn't even explain to my mom what I do. They well. still, after nine years, think that I get paid to do this. Wow. Yeah. Let's keep it And I'm not tell, I've never told them I do. Let them believe it. <laughs> yeah, this usually becomes the podcast where parents find out things about our guests. Oh, I am fortunate. I don't think my parents have ever... Listen to a podcast. Wow. And let's not make it the one that they listen no, to. No, we're not going to start today. I do, however, want to have a little follow-up because I'm a huge fan of Human Centipede. Mm -hmm. So would you tell us a little bit what... For sure. Yeah, what's going on? The body double? What is that? So if you Google Human Centipede poster and go to images, it's the main poster where there's a man screaming with his arms up and then yeah. two arms like two out of pairs focus. of arms beneath yeah beneath it's like him. behind like a shower glass it is exactly a glass, shower curtain right? okay yeah and <laughs> a girl in my acting class said they need a body double for this horror movie poster it's a quick day it's a quick pay do you want it and i was like yes please so it was the studio like south la brea like near the 10 um wow. and a warehouse Okay. And it was a very professional shoot. The photographer was very nice. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it went off without incident to the point where I don't remember a lot about it. They just said it's for a horror film. When they said it was the human centipede, I assumed, oh, this is straight to video. I'll never hear about this again. Oh, Six months later, <laughs> I was in New York for a improv, an improv thing. And I was coming off the subway. And I looked to my right and there's a movie theater. And there's the poster, like in a coming soon marquee had you seen the finished image before nope okay that was it but you recognized yourself i did yeah. and the name is pretty unique sure. the human centipede did they tell you what the premise was they might have i um, mean you must have gotten a sense because there were there other people there because there in were the there were image, two girls there are, like... one of the girls is the girl who got me the gig okay but typical hollywood they wanted a man at the front of the poster <laughs> sure and uh the two girls were literally one of them was 
as close as you can be professionally to um, the crevice of sure. my ass. And then the girl sure. was right behind her. Though certainly not as close as the a- actors in the, no. in the final film. No, thank goodness no. Uh, <laughs> Spoiler not... alert for human sake. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it was a very professional shoot. Um, no one was completely naked. And okay. we all fucked right after. You didn't no. wear <laughs> you didn't wear any Merkins? Merkins? Is that what it is? I wore... Um, you mean, did I wear like a... Isn't that something people wear? Just like a uh, something to cover only your genitals. It was a no. It was a flesh color. They were mine, actually. A flesh colored uh, Calvin Klein pair of underwear. Oh, that, you were prepared. Well, I don't know why I had them, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they came in handy. They did once. And as much as I want this podcast to be about human centipede, it's not. One day, maybe. And I've never seen it still. <laughs> Which is upsetting because it's an amazing film. What I want is the poster, but I think that is the height of narcissism. <laughs> Wouldn't you recognize yourself in this poster if you didn't know it was you? Like, you know, the When I universe? pointed out to people like the mouth, the eyes, the scream, no. Uh, <laughs> people are like, oh, I see it. Uh-huh. Yeah, it is like your head shape. Yeah. Uh, once you know it, it's you. Right. And once you've seen me, once again, screaming. <laughs> Were you screaming for real, obviously? Uh, no, it was just... Okay. And that just, if you missed it, was me doing exactly what I did the day of mm. shooting. Well, Nothing. I did I, I did one of those sh- uh, like historic reenactment shows one oh, time where it's sure. like a yes. true crime thing. And I was playing a racist police officer. <sighs> and at first I was just... Because, you know, it's there's no sound, right? I was just like mouthing a scream and then they started making me like really oh, no. shout and yell no. by the end of the day I completely lost my voice. And they were like pushing me to like say things that were like edging toward like I never went all the way there. Right. I was just saying vague things like these people come in here and but they were just like, Yeah, really go for it. Really oh, no, no. You're like I don't want a, a recording of me <laughs> right. screaming these things to be out there in the world. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Chase what are we here to talk about? Speaking of screaming. Yeah. Speaking of screaming, we are here for 1981's uh, Mommy Dearest. Yes. Starring Faye Dunaway oh. as true Hollywood legend Joan Crawford, based on the book that Joan's daughter Christina wrote in the late 70s called Mommy Dearest, detailing allegations of child abuse and a pretty rough upbringing. Now, I'll this say. film is described as a mm. docudrama, you know, which is like. I know because it's based on the book about real events and there's a certain thing of like, okay, they're trying to jam, especially in Act 3, a lot of resolution like, oh, here's the person we've never heard of before, walks out the door and he introduces himself, like Christina's husband, I think. And you're like, <laughs> oh, that could only happen because they're trying to base it on the biography mm-hmm. of somebody's. But um, other than that, it didn't feel a lot like a docudrama to me. No. There doesn't seem to be a whole lot of docu, certainly a lot of drama. Yes, uh, and much of what happens in the movie, at least the stuff that is of legend, is either fabricated or exaggerated or not at all in the book. Interesting. Have, have you, you read, read the book? I've read the book, but more than that, I, to an extent, have not studied, but I know a lot about Joan Crawford mm. um, through podcasts and books. And just factually, there are things in the movie that fly in the face of like verifiable truth. Okay, now this is something I was thinking about a lot while watching the movie, uh, not only from the Joan Crawford perspective, but also from the Faye Dunaway perspective, mm-hmm. like how much of the kind of Hollywood myth of the difficult actress, you know, is really responsible for what we're seeing uh, on the on, in the film? And I, I don't know if there's a way to really answer that question. Oh, uh, you bring up an outstanding point. And I think that 
people often either don't remember or don't really care that the movie is about Joan Crawford. Mm. Usually I'll hear people when I bring that movie up say, oh, about Betty Davis, about someone else. But <laughs> they know what Faye every Dunaway single person knows is that Faye Dunaway is in that movie <laughs> and that it is her movie. And oh boy, it is her movie. And, you yeah. know, we're talking at the age of, I don't know how old she is. She must be in her 70s. She is now, I believe, either late 70s or almost 80. I mean, she's become, very unfortunately, right? But she's become a joke in the sense of how rude she is to everybody, right? Because right? she just earlier in this year of 2019 was fired from an off-Broadway, but like, or maybe like headed for Broadway, big yeah. production, where she just started slapping a crew member yep. and screaming names at the these people multiple people i think so mm. she got fired for that and not her first time to be fired from broadway <laughs> yeah i mean she has a reputation that precedes her and i know because the late sam christensen who i got to study with acting and this thing called actors branding but he was telling us he was a casting director for network and he oh. said he said oh boy he said and he used the word that I will not repeat on the mm -hmm. air about her, which it was very out of character for him. Hmm. So she must have been quite, quite a handful. Something, there really a, something. And I love that movie. It's her only Oscar. Um, but there's a book on the making of it. And yeah, it does not paint her favorably. And I believe, I don't remember which co-star was interviewed, but he did not mince his words about dealing with her. And that's been echoed by several people through several decades and fairly early on in her career. Not like she arrived eventually at that point, but apparently she was difficult out of the gate. Well, and look what she did to poor Moonlight at the Academy Awards. Oh. Remind oh. me, what happened? That, that was, was when <laughs> she and Warren Beatty uh, got the wrong Best Picture winner and sure. announced La La Land instead of Moonlight. Yeah, well, let's just put it on Warren. That that was a lot of him. <laughs> and that's, I think, her at her like best behavior, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, so what it happens is like he opens the envelope, right? And he's looking at it and he seems to recognize that this says Emma Stone, La La Land. That can't be right. She didn't win Best Picture and he's not doing anything. And so I feel like Faye Dunaway is just like, shut. And she did. She had a moment comma. of impatience. She was like, <laughs> just get on with it. And then she just, didn't she say it? Yeah. He shows it to her in kind of like a, here you do, you deal with this. And uh, yes, she just says La La Land because that's the title of the movie she and sees. And I think from what he had later said, he wasn't trying to get her to read it. He was trying to say like, look, this is incorrect, mm -hmm. but... It looked, he looked like, unfortunately, like a feeble older man. He which did. Is very, not, not the way I want to look at Warren Beatty because he used to be pretty hot. Oh my God. And not the way Warren Beatty wants you to look at him. Right. Certainly. No, no. But I mean, they're one of the like, just the strongest acting, hottest couples in Bonnie and Clyde, I mean, of oh, all yeah. time in Hollywood history. That film, I mean, which she was nominated for Oscars, mm -hmm. right? First like nomination, along, yeah. Along with, was, was the third was, one. Was that Gene she... Hackman nominated for that too? I believe all four of them were. Okay. Maybe Warren was not. I know, uh, what's her name? Um, Estella won for, won for Supporting Actress. Mm. But she was nominated a total of three times and she won on her final nomination for network. Yeah. What was the third one? Chi uh, network was the third. Chinatown was the second. Chinatown. Chinatown. I mean, and, it's and she's like, brilliant in that yeah, too. These are all like, like milestones in history of 
film. So and she was and she's just an amazing actress. You yeah, know? and she was unbelievably beautiful. Oh and yeah, it's uh, it's very sad what she's become, but there's still I still have a lot of respect for her, for what I she was. I do, especially being a woman at that time. Which even though the films themselves had become much more progressive, um, it was still a man's game in the late '60s and mm-hmm. '70s. And yes, I think there. Are two sides to it. I think she probably was very difficult, but I also think that a lot of men have behaved, have behaved exactly that way and suffered less damage to their reputations. I mean, I've also heard firsthand stories about her. I'm not trying to soften what a nightmare she is, but... <laughs> well, to go back to Mommy Dearest, yeah. she was actually trying to justify and clean up the act mm-hmm. of Joan Crawford, who she played, like, like in her portrayal. She had to fight the director and... How wild is she gonna get? Supposedly right. she was trying to bring it down yes. a notch. Huh. Yeah, she failed. I would. Say. She did. <laughs> or did she succeed? Because well, it's freaking awesome. That's the reason I champion this movie. Is yes, I recognize it's um, what it's flaws, but I think she is woefully um, maligned for a performance that was, at the very least, interesting, many times authentic, and truly did tape into what Joan Crawford was like. Uh, I mean, Joan Crawford was mentally unstable. She was cruel. She was dramatic. Um, she cared a lot about what people thought about her. And just like to think of... Which we three improvisers would not know anything about. No, do you guys like me? (laughs) (laughs) Who are you again? Uh, But, you know, it's like to think of the age of when Joan Crawford was, you know, alive and Mm -hmm. hot in Hollywood. There was like no... No Lexapro, whatever else is out there mm. in the psychoactive drug uh, market. Like, there was just nothing. Like, yeah. lithium was probably as far as any mental disease treatments would go, right, at the time. Yeah. So, it's like if you're born with depression or, you know, borderline personality, whatever it may be, there's just no con- way to control it. And she, Joan Crawford, had a horrible upbringing. Her, and so, I can understand a lot of what inspired her to be the difficult person she was. I mean, her mom was not kind to her. And I believe, and I'm pretty certain this is the this is accurate, her stepfather raped her. And her mom did not care. And only when Joan Crawford became famous did her mom and her brother try to ride her coattails and try to get as much money from her as they could. Um, so I know she had a pretty unloving upbringing. It's good to have an expert here on Joan Crawford. Yeah. Oh, boy. So, Chase, you mentioned... Um you know, that the reputation of this movie may not be, um, you know, the cleanest or the most pristine. Oh, it is a cult classic. Yeah, why do, why do you think it has this reputation? Why is this a good fit for Shut Up, I Love It? I think that it established its reputation within weeks of still being in the theaters. Mm. And its intent was to be a very glamorous, factual, passionate docudrama. And... The audience immediately knew that this was high camp. Mm-hmm. That scene with the wire hangers, if you've seen the movie, there is no way to interpret that except as high camp. And I, just the way that she is lit in that scene, it's like, like a monster. Chase, describe yes. that scene for those uh, listeners who haven't seen the film. And this one, I think, is one of the ones that is the most fabricated. Mm-hmm. Um, but little Christina, who at the time is probably six or seven is asleep and she's the adopted dog oh yes yes joan crawford could not have children and tried very hard to adopt and eventually did succeed in adopting four children two of whom are not in the movie at all um but christina was her first and her daughter and her pride and joy and christina's the one who wrote the book and so christina has always maintained in real life that 
Joan was the hardest on her. And one night, and this is after Joan has won an Oscar and everything is going relatively well, but it is later in her career. And it's 1945, 46. Uh, she's not young anymore. She's been let go from MGM. She's an angry woman who's drinking a lot. And this is conveyed in the movie as it was in real life. And one night she's drunk and she goes into her daughter's closet uh, and sees that one dress, for whatever reason, is hanging on a wire hanger as opposed to a plastic hanger that protects the integrity of like the shoulders. Mm. She takes this dress and for about five to six minutes proceeds to beat her daughter with the dress and the hanger and scream at her and utter the famous line or rather wail the famous line, <laughs> no wire hangers, then gets a real bug up her butt about the state of the bathroom floor and the two of them scrub it. Which after is a callback because there's an earlier scene where she's upset with the floor. Yeah, yeah. Right? And Joan really was truly OCD. That part mm. is very true to life. Um, this was a woman who wore gloves for everything and boiled everything and um, was very germ phobic. And they say that that is because in her teens and 20s, she contracted a lot of STDs. And so just had a real um, aversion to anything that was seemingly unclean. So the scene culminates. It's a form of trying to take control, right? Like control of the part of life that you can't control because you cannot control the larger things. Mm -hmm. And the scene uh, culminates with her emptying pretty much an entire container of Comet on the floor. And on her daughter. And on her daughter and beating her daughter with the Comet and the scrub. It seems like she's really, Faye Dunaway's really hitting that young actress Uh, with the... Yeah. In Faye Dunaway's autobiography, she mentions very little about Mommy Dearest, but she does does talk about the night of filming that scene. And even though child labor laws were very much active in 1980, I think they were up all night. Mm -hmm. And that was when Faye Dunaway was really battling with the director about this turning into just an exploitative, campy, uh, Mm over-the-top, tawdry movie. Fred Perry is the yes. director's name, who my girlfriend Megan informed me is the uncle of Katy Perry, or oh. was the uncle oh. of Katy Perry. Interesting. He's just I have heard that. And I think, you know, a lot of the blame of why this movie turned out so campy is probably on his shoulders, but it's not mm. just him. But everyone through the annals of history has pointed fingers at the other person. Their screenwriter, the director, Faye Dunaway. Mm. No one's ever said, yeah, this was my bad. <laughs> and course. how much... Of that as a better story and aftermath of any film than being forgotten, right? Uh, of course. Sure. Like there's still conversation happening. We are here talking about it because yeah. it is such a, just a strong vision, whether yeah. it's mm-hmm. wrong or right. And I have to say, when I first saw it at 17, it to me, you couldn't have told me at 17 it was a bad movie because I was just so enamored of her performance mm. and that scene and how campy it was and for someone who was still in the closet uh in conservative oklahoma in the 90s when it wasn't as progressive as it is now there was something that was almost you know it was like seeing madonna at a young age it's like wow look at this person just be so over the top and larger than life um and it wasn't until years later when i was like oh yeah this is actually a really poorly edited um movie and a few other poorlies as well in that scene especially, she looks like a monster. Oh, she's, yeah. She's got a, a face mask on, but also... It's this, like this a white red face lipstick. mask, bright red lipstick. She's wearing a black evening gown. She looks like the Joker. Yeah, she does. Her <laughs> I wanted to save back. this opinion for the end, but I feel like it's important for me to bring it up, what I think of it now without you know rating the movie. I would say that I disagree strongly with both of you. I think that her acting is super on point because there's such a thing as 
real living people being, you know, like you say, in larger than life chase, but also like she's really being that character. Like, you know, there's living people who are so far gone mentally that they are acting like a caricature of human being. And I think Faye Dunaway actually really captures this falsehood, but like commitment to who she is. Like we like there's really no other way this woman would be because she is like constantly performing. She's constantly imagining herself to be seen by others. Mm. Like I rem- remember as a kid reading uh, a biography on Catherine the Great, like a Russian empress. And she was always imagining she, since she was a little girl, even when she was alone, that there's like a crowd of people watching her. So she was always performing for other people that were not there. And I think there's just something going on here, like mentally that this character would do. And I, I don't even know if it has to do with maybe my personal experience with meeting people like that, but I just believe that she is so presentational in like zero to 60 in like a split second. So I actually don't see her performance at all as like inauthentic. Now, let me be clear, though. Mm-hmm. I don't malign her performance at all. I think sure, she's sure. brilliant in this movie. I think that she should have been nominated for and won an Oscar for this movie. So I think that the movie is camp, but her performance is the one thing about this movie that is enduring. I don't think she's bad at all. I think she nails the part. And I think what you're saying um, also extends to the the child actress who's playing Christina in the first half of the movie. I freaking love that She was actress. great. Mm-hmm. I thought she was amazing. outstanding. Mara she, Hobble. She's nominated for this movie for a Razzie. Um, I was shocked dumb. when I read that. The, yeah, the young girl did not deserve that. Especially, you know, I mean, I get, well, her face is so expressive. And also at the end of this no oh, wire hanger scene, I love she that. gives the maybe the best delivery of just Jesus Christ that has ever been in a movie. That's I my think. boyfriend's favorite part. And she's <laughs> very good too. Those two are outstanding in the movie. And I think that reflects what your her performance reflects what you're saying too, Sasha, in that like, you know, maybe the reason that the people who run the Razzies didn't like her is because she is like this very performative child. But there's no other way that the daughter of this character could be no. than that, right? Like she grew up as Joan Crawford's daughter. This is how she would be. To me, her emotions are... if. A very real, even if her maybe acting is not as quote unquote grounded, but the emotions are real. And so she's dealing with them in that presentational way because she wants to have the fame that her mother has, right? Because there's a scene prior to that where uh, Faye Dunaway's character, John Crawford, finds Christina in front of the mirror, in front of triage, right? That it's, it's Chase, would you describe that scene? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh- she is holding up a comb, um, Christina, little Christina, as if it's an award she's just won. And it's actually not at all insulting to her mother. It's like, oh, I'd like to thank my fans. And this is such a lovely night, as any kid would, pretending they've won an award. And her mom walks in. And this is, once again, kind of like talking about the precursor to the wire hanger scene where her mom had just won an Oscar. This is right after her mom had just found out that she was cast in the movie that would eventually lead her to win the Oscar. So two instances where there's actually good news and at least for the narrative of the movie and after getting the news Joan Crawford goes into her bedroom sees Christina in front of the mirror accepting her award and she's got product in her hair setting lotion 
And Joan Crawford takes this as an insult. Her daughter's not doing make-believe. Her daughter's making fun of her. And that's exactly what she says to her. You making fun of me? Uh, and then proceeds to notice that there's setting lotion in her hair and takes a pair of scissors and without there being any blood, rather violently yeah. chops all her daughter's hair off. And to me, that scene is a whole explanation. Why would, like, how else would this little girl act going and forward? That scene perfectly highlights, to answer your question, why I think this movie is a worthy topic for this podcast. Everyone just assumes that Mommy Dearest is a bad movie. And for all intents and purposes, it is. That scene is poorly edited. Her hair changes length throughout. <laughs> if you notice when she's cutting it, sometimes it's already short. I'm going to guess people were afraid to fix anything on Faye Dunaway so she would like bite their hand right. off. Right. <laughs> However, those two actresses are great in that scene. And that is why I'm a champion of the movie. Not everything about that movie is horrible. I think that her performance, especially Faye Dunaway's, is genius. I think it's just any work of art. Sometimes it's better when it's not perfect because you, I don't know, you just see it for the vulnerable state that it's in. And mm -hmm. you just see against maybe the uh, shortcomings you see the, the things that did work out so well, and then you love it more than if it's, quote-unquote, the perfect movie. Well, if I, you were to ask me if I'd rather watch uh, what won Best Picture most recently, um, or something from the past, like Spotlight won Best Picture several years ago. If you were to ask me, would you rather watch Spotlight or Mommy Dearest, 10 times out of 10, I will tell you I'd rather watch Mommy Dearest. Now, how about Green Book? I would rather watch both mommy dearest and spotlight <laughs> at the over same time over, at the then, same time while they drown out yeah. each other yeah. then ever watch green book again that's uh, what one best picture yeah. i wonder yeah. i forgot right ridiculous but not moonlight because that's a good film no i love moonlight that i would rather yeah, yeah. what about la la Land? <laughs> i i see i faye dunaway aside i liked la la land but we'll save I like that for la another la land time too yeah we we don't have time to talk about this yeah. but i i do feel like la la land has gotten i'll come back and defend reputation. the hell twice, out of la la land twice i tried to watch la la land like being like i love musicals why can't i watch it and i would just twice stop and be like i'm walking out of okay. here so <laughs> part of it for me is emma stone other than that movie where she played an asian girl which i never saw oh aloha yeah i never saw it other than that she's playing i would see her in anything a quarter chinese in that movie i think She's about and, to play Cruella DeVille. Oh, but enough about wear that coat. Uh, wait, sorry, what were we talking about? We were just kind of I getting an attention about roundabout way of answering your question of why I think the movie is fitting for this podcast, and then yeah. agreeing that Faye Dunaway it's is. It's really making you want to discuss it. I mean, that's mm -hmm. really amazing that we've already spent so much time just talking about mm -hmm. like what we like and don't like about this film. It is like a very emotional piece. You really can't take your eyes off of Faye Dunaway when no. she's on screen there, mm -hmm. which a lot of times in this age of ADHD, your mind just operating in that level, you get distracted. You cannot get distracted watching this film at no. all. Her face is like a special effect. Just It's very compelling to look at everything that she's doing. You know, she's got these, these drawn-on eyebrows that are arched very high. And that is so true to Joan Crawford. Yeah. I, it must have been. I I figured she, watching it's it. uncanny. Which people were saying, right? On set, the yeah. few people that did were old enough to have worked with Joan Crawford. Mm. They said the moment Faye Dunaway stepped on the set the first time, they were blown away and like felt the uncanny feeling of yeah. seeing Joan in front of them. And that's the only flattering thing that they will admit about Faye Dunaway. But it is true. They will say she was truly she was uh, possessed by her spirit. And what's interesting is in 1969... They had interviewed Joan Crawford and she was bemoaning like how actresses were then compared to in the 40s. And she was like, of all the actresses of today, the only one who's got what it takes is Faye Dunaway. 
And that's probably the moment Faye Dunaway thought, I need to play Joan Crawford one day. Oh, I yeah. I mean, Faye Dunaway did, of course, mention that in her autobiography. Faye Dunaway even talked about feeling possessed yes. by Joan Crawford, right? She would go home yeah. alone and feel like the spirit of Joan Crawford was there with her. Yep. Which sounds truly terrifying. Sounds terrifying. Sounds very method and sounds very, you know, admirable that somebody mm-hmm. would be so committed to the character that they embody. Like, again, I don't know. It's just one of those things like, look, if this is what gets her to the place of being a phenomenal actress, then, you know. And she uh, is phenomenal. And there are movies where she is definitely over the top. I don't think she is over the top in playing a woman who was over the top. Mm. To do what she did in Chinatown, and especially in Network with Patty Chayefsky's like brilliant but very wordy script, I mean, not just any actor can make that that fascinating. Uh, so it is a shame that often her behavior eclipses their just incredible talent. Especially when, like, this is stuff that male actors do all, all the time. All the time. Right? You know, all, you hear about all these method actors who, like, yeah, well, fucking Jared Leto on Suicide Squad <laughs> sending, like, used condoms to his co-stars. People just being like, that's his process, you know? Like, what you just got to be it? the Joker. Oh. That was... 2013 14 this was not that long ago uh but i guess right before me too happened that's why i asked um so just to get through the plot so we we know at this point the relationship is very strained between this young girl and Mm -hmm. her adoptive mother Mm -hmm. and i have to mention that there's a speculation right that joan crawford takes on these children because she wants to promote herself Mm -hmm. right what yes. do you think of that? Because it's kind of like left uh, ambivalent, it, right? And one thing that I think is so interesting about this movie is that because it is not that well edited, it does play like a series of vignettes into this woman's life. Mm-hmm. Some of them thread together well. Like at the beginning, there is this whole uh, discussion about why she wants children. And especially this skepticism of the adoption agency over why someone who is such a legend and, you know, um, single, which at the time was a much bigger deal than it is now and a drinker and a smoker so you can't help but wonder if she's driven by the star machine and seeing other women of her age have husbands and children and families and they've settled from being an actress to retiring to be a mother and it's something she physically couldn't have so i think part of it is as a control freak someone told her she couldn't and that was Mm -hmm. i think all the initiation she needed and then part of it too i think that she wanted to keep staying relevant and that's what other women her age were doing and she wanted to do the same thing since acting by that point well she was still making good movies around the time she adopted christina but shortly thereafter it was the naughty bitty stuff and the film the script really makes um the point of showing how committed she is to Mm -hmm. acting right with the very first sequence this montage uh, before we even see her face and you do not like montages and i don't like montages <laughs> in the beginning but this one it's it's very telling about what this character is that we're dealing with she's so committed to her profession that she wakes up at 4 a.m mm. she gets out of bed she immediately gets her iced water uh, well uh, just a bowl of ice right with cold water ready to go because hey this is how you take care of your face in uh, and scalding hot water in the sink 
Right. And, and and then you also take a brush that like I normally see like for shoes, right? Like shoe <laughs> yeah. polish and you like start rubbing your face with it. And I'm like, dude, dude, don't do it. This is gonna this you're gonna rub your face off. But that's how you stay looking good. And that is how Joan Crawford was, I believe, until her dying day. And that whole opening that's probably like three minute opening montage where you don't actually see Faye Dunaway's face, right? You're just seeing her do all of these things going through her morning routine and then she gets to set and she turns around and it's that's there she and is. it's huge it's very yeah. present right no wonder one of the i don't know like i guess descriptions of what this film is by um critics was that she like eats up the entire mm-hmm. scene including all co-stars setting and everything else she just eats it up because she's so much bigger presence than anybody else and what's interesting to note as a side note and another defense of the movie not so much in the vein of this what the podcast is discussing but there are people who are on record saying she was actually kind to her castmates on the set like the little girl after the night they had to film that awful scene she bought her like a really nice watch and said you know i i know you know this but this is acting and um i think very highly of you the woman who played her maid uh rutanya alda who played carol ann wrote a fairly, in my opinion, petty book uh, with the intent of being like, look how awful Faye Dunaway was. Mm. And every single story that she tells to illustrate this is Faye agreed to switch the time of their shooting that scene so Rutanya Aldo could go be with her family. And she's like, wow, isn't she awful? <laughs> and so it's like, well, it sounds like she was actually quite kind to you. Mm. So it, it sounds is... like she was able to separate the identity between herself and Joan Crawford enough to be fairly human to the people she worked with. What a betrayal because Carol Ann is with Joan Crawford until the end. Yeah. Yeah. And talk about one of the film's less compelling performances. (laughs) Really? Oh. Carol Ann? You were a big fan? fan. Oh, I thought she was, I thought she and the daughter as an adult were just awful. (laughs) Well, I have so much to, have so much to argue with you about because I Good. enjoyed like everything on. about this film, but I'm not here Spoiler. to talk about. Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! But <laughs> I, instead, I will tell you a quick story that my boyfriend told me about Faye Dunaway that he had experience with mm. her personally. Oh wow! He was at Telluride at a Telluride Film Festival a few years back, so I'm guessing like ten, probably maybe more years ago, and uh, there was a performance by Zakir Hussain, the amazing musician that uh, it was a very small venue. And so my boyfriend, Jay, went to see Zakira Hussein, who's a big fan of, and he sat next to Faye Dunaway. Then there was like a, another person, another audience member came in. So there's like some hippie girl, and she was like maybe high on drugs. Maybe she was just like kind of like thought she is at a Grateful Dead concert. So even though it was very like chamber music, almost like vibe inside the small place with Zakira Hussein playing, I guess she was sitting like, on the other side of Faye Dunaway, and this, my boyfriend was on the other side. But she, this lady started, like, dancing, and, like, she started, like, making this, like, arm movements and being, like, very distracting. And Faye Dunaway, like, started turning to Jay and being, like, with her eyes, like, pointing at this girl, like, like <laughs> what is happening? Like, and she was so mad. And uh, she didn't do anything, right? That's, that's, like, she it's didn't sort of, slap her across It's the anticlimactic, the story. But I, I actually, when Jay told me the story, I was like, I would feel the same because once yeah. I went to I get that uh, yeah like a rock concert but like was all seated it was a, the wall at a Staples Center there was mm. the wall but Pink Floyd mm-hmm. and there was a person next to me and I was like this is not like you don't get up in front of me 
and like block completely my view and she was sitting next to me but then she would step ahead of me and she would like block my view just so she can you know do the arm movements and, and i was like you gotta sit down <laughs> so i am a lot meaner than faye dunaway in that sense and so i don't know to me it was like i totally am on board with faye dunaway so the whole time she was not enjoying the she was just instead just looking over to jay and rolling her eyes and like pointing finger like like look at that <laughs> like i just cannot like you you oh my god but she didn't do anything yeah so you know hey I I don't know. I mean, to I me, would, it's the story is like very human. I would love to meet Faye Dunaway. I mean, I read her autobiography. A lot of women who are difficult are my total heroes. Like Madonna's not known for being terribly nice. Um, <laughs> nice and, women really make yeah. the story. And I don't blame. I understand why they're in that position. And I think there are stories about Faye Dunaway that are probably like, ah, oh, that might have been unnecessary. But again, how many stories about men are there on the equal page? Yeah, yeah definitely. So then the movie uh, takes turn, which were mentioned from, you know, the young actress who plays Christina, who I think is an acting teacher now in New York, because yes, I looked I her up. I was very interested what happened to her. Take a class with her. Please yeah. do, because she must have a lot of great knowledge, because she's fantastic in this film. But so then it changes right in this, like, very orchestrated close-up. Oh, yeah, it's she turns quite a around. match cut. Yeah. Understand. Chase, Chase, would you describe how do we get introduced to the older version of Christina? After little Christina has witnessed one too many times mom having a gentleman visitor over. An uh, uncle. Uh, yeah, and they're all called uncle. And this This is uncle- very Russian, by the way. Like, this, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I think it's like an old timey thing. But like in Russia, I think <laughs> that was a thing. Like, your mom has boyfriends. Like, they're all uncles. Which is so weird. So creepy. But like, it's like a way to be like, we don't get children involved. Like, and it's just a, a member of the family. And by yeah. this point in the movie, to the credit of young Mara Hobble, the actress, she is um, a, a robot. And I think it's a great choice. She's making the uncles their drinks. She knows exactly how to pour mom's drinks. And she's six or seven mm-hmm. getting behind a bar in this Brentwood mansion <laughs> with thought... all this glassware. This is also very Russian. I don't know. Maybe that's why I'm so connected to this film. A mm. lot of it is like a, a fucked up, like I could see there be like a fucked up Russian film. You know what I sure. mean? Like about fucked up like relationship with mother and daughter and like, what is like a young child is subjected to. And then like mom is like sitting there with her leg out in the air yeah. and he's just like rubbing the leg or something weird. I don't know. Like it's such a, like, I don't know. Like I connect with that in yeah. like a fucked up way. Mm-hmm. I think that as a quick side note, most people connect to the movie and not exclusively just enjoying it as a camp icon, but also like people I went to high school with like, oh yeah, my mom's not that crazy, but we have a difficult relationship. We fight over everything. Oh, absolutely. And by the way, again, campy, here's... I'm just going to insert it right here. I, as much as I don't like whimsical films, it's just that my thing. I've mentioned it before in the podcast. I do not like campy. I love horror films mm-hmm. and I do not like campy. Kill me. But this is an exception to the rule. If this is campy, then I like it. I also think that camp, camp, much like whimsical, are words that can kind of mean whatever you want them to mean based on your individual opinion about a thing like they they are useful words to describe like the tone Mm -hmm. of something like mommy dearest but it the value of that word like the connotation of that word varies hugely between each individual person who's saying it yeah and yet everything that is identified as camp i get and i love like 60s batman Mm. dynasty uh I, think, I take it for face value, this film. And I think that's why I have a defense for it is because, like I said, when I first watched it, I wasn't thinking this movie is 
awful. I wasn't watching it a group in a group of people intending to watch a bad movie. I was watching it alone as what was the situation? Did you rent it from like a Hollywood video? No, it was on like TBS. It was on cable. And I know one of my friends in high school, she had mentioned it, I think kind of making fun of her mom in that regard. And I was like, oh, I don't think I've seen it. I think I already knew about the infamous wire hanger scene, but then I watched it. And when I watched it, I was like, God, this is interesting. This is uh, compelling. You want to watch this. Yes. And then, you know, as I moved here and studied more about the actual storytelling and acting, I thought, okay, yeah, there are elements of this movie that are a little uh, poorly executed. But uh, back to what you were talking about, though, the transition, Mm -hmm. Christina's. We are shipping young Christina off to boarding school. And I think it's Carol Ann drives her. Her mom doesn't even drive her. And Carol Ann's giving her the speech. Great performance by Carol Ann. Mm -hmm. (laughs) No, I think Faye Dunaway does take her to the boarding school. Well, someone asks her, like, you know that your mom loves you. You understand. That's that's the um, like the headmistress. Oh yeah, the, the headmistress. You're yeah, gonna love it which, here. Yeah, is not, it is very like she's a Caroline type. Yeah, I was gonna yeah. say. Mm-hmm. And then we cut immediately to Caroline in boarding school years later as a teenage girl, giving what in the movie got a standing ovation, but what is in actuality a very terribly stilted. Uh, performance of I don't even remember what, but it's she's it's she's saying yeah, it's something Greek. It's a Greek tragedy, and she's saying as she heard as a child, understand. So we know it's the same character, and then we go pretty quickly into adult Christina or teenage Christina getting kicked out of boarding school because she made mixed out with a boy, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and his, and his girlfriend, girlfriend walks in. I'm gonna tell. <laughs> she's not wrong, and she says it again. He insists that they're just friends. Yeah. He insists that and he she is, is not flirting his pretty egregiously with her in front of his girlfriend. That's a great part where Christina is telling him to stop and the girl who is yeah, just stop. his friend is also like, "Yeah, stop it." And Christina, it's just what a so much wasted dialogue. Yeah, if I'm not too famous. <laughs> uh, and then Chase, I'm getting the sense that you're not a huge fan of the teenage Christina's no. performance. No. But I also embrace it as part of the movie. That's what makes it interesting. But isn't she, like, that's why she is not in the zeitgeist, because she was never as good as her mother. Right. And it kind of, I kind of look at it as, like, this is the chickens coming home to roost, right? The the childhood of abuse has manifested in a kind of, you know, reserved person who's afraid to... uh, go out too far in any one direction doesn't maybe not line up with the first scene where we see her where she's given a standing ovation for her monologue from antigone but uh plausible defense i don't share it but i can understand that virtue i guess i'm a little lukewarm to her like i don't have like she's not the one that i my mind ever goes to when i think of this film but i will say i'll take caroline over it's probably (laughs) tough to say whether or not a performance is good or grounded in that movie when you're up against such a monsoon of a performance. I mean, how can you hold your own? Which actually the little girl holds her own very well against Faye Dunaway. And I think because she's the only one other than maybe the first boyfriend, the attorney with whom she gets in the screaming match in her bedroom. And I think the soda King guy that she eventually marries, he's only in a few scenes, but I I think he, he matches her well in in those scenes, especially the scene where he's, you know, telling her they have to cut back on their spending. Oh Yeah. But um, for people like Carol Ann and adult Christina, I think yeah. I think it's bad acting, but I think it's also, well, there's no direction to go when you're in a scene with Faye Dunaway throttling you and banging your head <laughs> sure. against the floor. Yeah. 
So when she comes back, yes, right? Yes, which leads us school. to their contentious relationship, which has not improved. And it starts off with an angry Joan going to pick up Christine after she's kicked out of boarding school. We soon learn that Joan is running out of money and she's had to let go of pretty much everyone in her household staff. Christine except has to Carol start Ann. To, except Carol Ann. Who she also so does good. eventually have to let is go of. Is that when she has like a like a witch makeup on, or is it? Does it no, happen that's later? just the poor prosthetics. That's when she visits her. <laughs> spoiler alert: Joan Crawford dies when she visits her in the funeral home. Spoiler alert: Joan Crawford is not still alive. She died in seventy no, eight. No, but I think there's a scene where they're at the table. I mean, I'm probably jumping forward, but there's a scene at the table where you're like, oh, well, fade on her way. was not going to do anything to her face. Mm-hmm. She still looks young. She's, she's playing an older woman, but she's still young. And this poor Latvian Caroline. actress, right, Carol Ann, yeah. she has like, like literally like a new face on her. Yeah. That was it makes her look 100 years old. That actress, Rutanya Alda, she did say that in her book about Mommy Dearest. Because there are points of criticism against Faye Dunaway that are perfectly valid. One of them is that Faye Dunaway made it a point to say, oh, her makeup is too good or she looks too pretty or that's too flattering. So there were times when that actress had about, to go back. About yes. Carol Ann? Yes. Well, and, and by no means I was ever looking and be like, I'm going to compare the two. That's right. shocking. But I called it, I guess, because I was like watching that scene. And I'm like, oh, it was like fucking Faye Dunaway being like, you're putting absolutely that was. makeup on me. Like, I'm going to look good, which happens a lot to like actors and like big mm, names stars, that they're yeah. like, yeah, stars are exactly women who are like as early as late 30s. They're like. Oh, oh, you're going to like, I'm going to have my lighting guy. I'm going to have my, you know, makeup person. And you don't, you don't ever make me look older. Mm-hmm. So they have total control of that. And mm. you see that next to freaking Carol Ann, who looks like unrecognizable. She can't move a muscle well, on her, her face. The final scene in the movie is just comedic when they're at the funeral home. <laughs> oh, Carol Ann's last yeah. appearance. Yeah. <laughs> Where she looks even older than in that yep. witch scene. Yeah, she looks like a great, great, great grandmother in that scene. Yeah, they do make Faye Dunaway look almost old when she's on her deathbed, I guess, watching uh, Oh yeah, her Christina daughter win the award, an award on her behalf. I don't think ever really happened either, but... And, you know, I actually have to say, like, you know, as beautiful as Faye Dunaway, she looks a little older than late 30s overall in this film. I think I think she, it's just one of those things yeah, like... She I think it was smoked, a different time, though, probably, mm-hmm. right? You know, she people smoked a older. lot mm. and drank a lot. There's some skin situation going on because I was like, uh, she's gorgeous and everything else I've seen her. And I was like, oh, she looks a little older than late 30s. I don't she know. was maybe not doing that skincare routine no. that Joan Crawford was doing every Right. Day. She wasn't boiling her face <laughs> and rubbing it with a shoe polish right. brush. Yeah. Which she should have yeah set that alarm for four don't think just do it it's so funny though that she felt like competitive with freaking carol ann like that she was like make this bitch look ugly next to me so i can shine like that's so funny part of it could have been her wanting to honor joan crawford who probably wasn't that far off from having a similar feeling about people again i think that if that's what made her deliver this freaking performance i'm gonna want her side mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know there's also like a famous scene where i thought of what faye dunaway must have had to do her whole life which is something you mentioned already chase like when she had to like tell men that like she's gonna fucking like have demands and man better listen that's what happens right when the her i think was it when her the, the soda king soda king dies right how, he passes yeah how or is that when or was it Early on, where she says, don't fuck with me, fellas. That's at the Pepsi board meeting after Hal has died, when they want to kind of get her off the board. Mm-hmm. And that's that's just as famous a line as no wire hangers. <laughs> is that the only 
an F word in yep, the movie? Yep, in a PG rated 1981 movie, PG. a pre PG 13 sure, yeah. era. Nice. That's like you could do one F word. It's like when you watch Airplane and there's exposed breasts that just bounce through the frames. Like, <laughs> yeah. What in the world? You gotta use it. If you it's have... either kids or no kids. That was it. <laughs> I also like think like her performance, like what must have inspired, you know, and who knows what inspires what. It's all in the air, right? In the ether. But like Cersei Lannister, right? I mean, it's hmm. very contained performance, mm-hmm. obviously. But Lena Headey. Lena Headey. She's doing kind of those things, but in a very contained way that I think Faye Dunaway is doing. And like to me, their energy in some ways is like very different, but it's also very similar in like that, you know, she's the queen. She's the fucking queen, mm-hmm. no matter where she goes. I don't know, man. Maybe all strong women come off similar in some ways when they prefer but there's something about this royal power that i think i see in both cersei lannister and john crawford as performed by faye dunaway in this film and i think faye dunaway really took that note to heart because that is how joan felt when louis Mayer tells joan that she's hollywood royalty that is they're treated that way now to an extent but back then even more so. Mm-hmm. Any book about any actor from that time period informs how celebrities were treated back then, their way of life. They were never in their sweats going to the supermarket, ever. They didn't, would never think to own sweats, period. Uh, Although she might be using sweats, right, when she's running and trying to look true. trim. For, for her athletic endeavors, sure. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Joan Crawford believed she was royalty, and I think Faye Dunaway nails that aspect as well. You can even see brief moments, and I think they're brilliant, of just the delusion literally sweep across her face at the very end of the scene after she has beaten her daughter with a wire hanger, a dress, a bottle of Comet, and a rag. As she's leaving and tells her to clean up this mess, you see just the slightest smile. Oh, hell yeah. Hell yeah. You and I think see it's genius. Yes. And what's interesting to note is prior to Faye Dunaway, the choice to play Joan Crawford was Anne Bancroft of The Graduate. Hmm. And while she is a genius in her own right, that would have been a much different performance. Absolutely. And I think it would have been a much different movie. And I don't know if it would have had its cult status without Faye Dunaway. Yeah, that's interesting. That's an interesting alternate universe to think about because you would probably expect Anne Bancroft to give a more grounded performance, mm-hmm. probably what like the screenwriter was envisioning when they wrote it. And yeah, that's, hmm, wow. I, to, to, to see that movie would be fascinating. Yeah. Somewhere out there, the versions of us are doing a podcast on just that. Oh, I want to go there. <laughs> or see that movie or just that once. movie is just like super disposable because who cares, right? right. Like clearly, fade the fade done away ness of this movie is what has made it such an enduring piece of media. Mm-hmm. No doubt, because like, we weren't really planning this podcast to be as much about fade done away as it is about the film. But it's really going hand. I don't. Just, I don't think you can separate is. the two. Yeah. And I think that if you've brought someone on to in any capacity to ever defend that movie, it's going to be solely by the virtue of Faye Dunaway's performance. Mm. So how does the film end? I think we covered yeah. parts of it. Yes. Well, and you're right. Into you know we've had guests describe movies as a series of vignettes and just be very wrong about that. But mm-hmm. this certainly is this is a series of like brief episodes yeah and it just jumps from incident to incident but it Especially happens in, in biopics in general in a i think way. biopics it just happens a lot sure. man it's yeah. so it hard does. to pull off for an editor you know what i mean like it's just like fitting an entire life over prominent human being into two hours i mean it's not even although it is a two-hour movie it's oh, yeah. just like i think five minutes over. yeah it's at the two-hour mark for it, sure uh, it you know i think the the best quote-unquote best biopics are the ones that kind of like choose 
a moment in time right. and really like dig in on that and use that moment to inform who the person was, you know, something like Selma or something like that. It's ho- it's a lot harder to succeed when you're trying to take Liberace. a person's whole life and and put a whole life on screen. That's much harder to do. Yeah. So that's you know, what happens in Act Three here. It's a little right. bit, a little bit much. And bear yeah, in mind, it starts to feel shaggy, right? Because the second actress is playing Christina this whole time. It's hard to really get a sense of how much time is passing, right? Especially when Faye Dunaway is not aging as much as anyone the character would be to help communicate it to the audience. Right. But of course, there's the famous episode of something that really happened (laughs) when John Crawford steps in at like 60 years old Mm -hmm. to play a 28-year-old Well, Christina. Yeah, Christina was on a soap opera and her, I believe, appendix burst. Called like Storm Chasers? Yeah, something something in the night or one of those throwaway soap opera titles from that era. But yeah, Faye Dunaway worked a day or two. (laughs) Four episodes, I think. And that part, playing a 28-year-old at 60. So and it was, was at, her, like, at her insistence. Yeah. Like, people were just like, great, we can have her. We can have the John Crawford for, like, scale. Yeah. Do, we could never afford her otherwise. She's going to play 28-year-old. It's okay. People would just like watching. I mean, what a failure slash success of, I don't know, Hollywood making a dumb decision. I I wonder if that footage is available. I tend to recall having looked for it years for ago. It. I looked for it. And back then, everything was so disposable, yeah. and especially for a soap opera where they're shooting an episode a day. So that's a real shame that that doesn't exist anymore if, if it doesn't. That's one of the places where I think this movie fails in what like the production was setting out to do is like i want to see some fallout from that right but, not just yeah. an episode but just dig in deeper right it's like a, what does it propel the characters further based on that you see christina is not pleased with it but then the next scene has jumped some unknown number of years and we're the hair has changed slightly right so it, you know i don't think this was like a breaking point for them but how did what happened in their relationship because of that you know yeah i feel like because it's trying to shove uh you know the first half of the movie is maybe like two years right and then the second half of the movie is 40 years all shoved into one hour and so it it loses the the thread there yeah we like meet you know as i mentioned before christina's husband and he like literally introduced himself to us the film audience he's like i'm christina's husband like i've been around or whatever i don't even think he has a line he they're at the funeral (laughs) and uh christina is like has her moment with her mom she walks out of the vestibule where the body is being kept and christopher is there yeah who is the adopted son that we haven't seen for the last hour and a half. it the took me like five scene. minutes to really like realize that's who it is she's like hey christopher it's great to see you and he's now played by xander berkeley who's a mm-hmm. who's an actor who's in heat and 24 and he looks very young in this i thought it was really funny and then this guy walks up and she's like oh david hey christopher this is my husband it's like all right Never met before, yeah. <laughs> For some reason, Jay, my boyfriend, I, I, when I was telling him I'm watching this movie, he's like, oh, right, it's, you know, so the the kids' names are Christina and Christopher. He's like, Christopher, right? I'm like, Christopher is barely in this film. Like, why would you ever remember <laughs> there, that? Christopher is a witness to the famous wire hanger scene mm-hmm. with many Maybe that's quotable why Jay lines. Got social, he was like, he was, you know, he and, got into his shoes. And one of the lines, one of the many things, because to your point about, like, what's the fallout, 
this movie is either setup or payoff. It is rarely both of them. <laughs> and with the instance of Christopher, we mm-hmm. just eventually see him. Eight, we never mention adopting him ever. <laughs> and yet all of a sudden he's there. And then all of a sudden later that night, he's in a harness. We don't know why. <laughs> right. he's and so it bed. gives us the line that lets people know that he's in the scene of Christopher. No, strap yourself in. She'll kill me if she finds out. And so you know Christopher's in that scene because she's name dropped him. And then the other time you see him, you know, say something oh, is really when he Christmas. finds out that he. Oh, I'm sorry, Christmas. The radio show, and oh. I heard them exclaim. <laughs> she's like looking at them like, "You better say this right," because there's a radio host over at their house. They're yeah. saying and they're the ending last the Christmas lines, story, yeah. and I heard him exclaim as he da 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 da. Merry Christmas to all, and to all a good night. Yeah, and I was thinking of the final scene where he basically, like, you know, for Christopher, when he finds, like, oh, so we're not, we, well, he's surprised that he's not getting any money. Oh, They've yeah. Been from the Which was also pulled from truth. Mm. She, were all reason, four children disinherited or just uh, these two? We I, don't know. I, I, I know that that fact exists. I don't know if all of them were. I know Christina and Christopher definitely were. How Jerry Lewis of... <laughs> That's what I was thinking. And yeah, what Christina has said Crawford. is as the movie conveys, she did say four reasons that are known to them both. Uh-huh. And Christina said, we don't know what reason that is, which I think is what propelled Christina to write this book. I assumed it was because... Um, Joan. Vengeance. Well, <laughs> I think that not getting any money was a big fuel to that fire. Joan. Joan says throughout the movie, like, "Oh, it's better to make your own way." Mm-hmm. Right? She has this kind of like pull yourself up by your bootstraps the way that I did kind of approach. That's what I was thinking that was a reference to in the will, but you know who who knows. One thing about Christopher that is interesting. So we we are introduced to him as a baby when he's adopted. And then at a certain point, he's not a baby anymore. Mm-hmm. And he's like six years old now. But that Christina has not gotten any older. Right. But so in real life, Joan Crawford adopted a second child, Christopher, mm-hmm. as a baby. Mm-hmm. The birth parents of Christopher reclaimed Christopher. He was removed from Joan's house. Joan adopted a new boy gave him a different name this is all real life yeah oh at a certain point she renamed that boy christopher oh it's and like people naming dogs people dogs like the same name so it just Maybe. feels like it's the same dog <laughs> that's always been that around. detail that's fascinating this, and and so i don't know if that's what they're referencing mm. because at a certain point like you see very young christopher and then in the next scene Christina is playing with Christopher and they pan over and all of a sudden he's much older. <laughs> given that given that the movie completely loses the other two children she eventually adopted, I have a feeling that from their narrative perspective it's the same Christopher. <laughs> Probably uh, in their, they wacky, they never, their wacky measure of how time right. has elapsed. They I've, never take pains to try and explain it. Yeah, I love the deep the deeper level that you discovered. It could be. That's fascinating. It could be. I I'm gonna take a I'm gonna say that this was meant okay. by the director. I like that you give more credit to the movie than anyone else has. <laughs> yeah. So, Sasha, had you ever seen Mommy Dearest or, or were you a fan of Joan Crawford or Faye Dunaway going into this experience? I thought I did see it, but I realized that I saw other films of exploitation movies mm-hmm. that I was just confused, you know, okay. and I have not had not seen it. But then I've seen twice since Chase mm, I love that. Oh, wow. You know, I'm familiar with whatever happened to Baby Jane, seen mm. it a bunch of times. 
uh, Sunset Boulevard is sort mm. of the high, highly regarded version of that mm. exploitation sure. film. Of, mm -hmm. How would you describe a reclusive uh, woman who lives in a big house, has a kind of a crazy temper, usually has a past with Hollywood. And she's fading, but fading her, star, fading star, but she is in a tumultuous relationship with a younger female, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's the first time I saw this film. What about you, Stephen? I saw. I've seen it before. I think I saw it in 2015. I watched it for the first time. Obama years. <laughs> oh, man. Remember 2015? Uh, Make yeah. America Joan again. <laughs> wow, Sacha, you really threw me into a spiral with that. Uh, yeah, I, um, I was familiar with the wire hanger scene. My sister and I used to watch... VH1's I Love the Blank oh, yes. show. I love, the 80s. Like, I love the 80s. I love the 70s. And they definitely, on one of the I Love the 80s, talked about uh, this movie and showed that scene. And, you know, it's all these talking heads reacting to how ridiculous it is. When Fuck I... those talking heads. I'm going to go ahead and say it right now. Anyway. When I watched it in 2015, I... Uh... Well, you were naive back then because it was Obama years. Right. It was a... You, <laughs> you know, I was thinking racism jaded. is over. We have yeah. a black president. This is I not a political podcast. I think that Mommy Dearest was maligned uh, pre-Obama. <laughs> <laughs> like, drone warfare is okay. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, we can reach across the aisle and shake hands yeah, with Yeah, designer McCain. dog breeds like Bo are the hottest... Bo. Obama's dog. Bo Obama. Uh, so yeah, I did not like it very much then. I gave it a one and a half star review. Out of time. what is it out for? Five thousand. No, out of five. Chase, how many times have you seen this film? Countless. I was thinking mm. about that on the way over here. There are three movies that I could not count how many times I've seen. Well, no, it's not Human Centipede. Mm, no, <laughs> I'm at a deficit on that. And they are all three campy, and they are all three movies that um, at the time were not terribly well received. Drop Dead Gorgeous, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, and then, of course, Mommy Dearest. Mm. I cannot count how many times I've seen any of those. Wow. Would you say it's uh, 50 or 100 or 1,000? Like, where? what's the ballpark? I need probably, to probably more on the 50 scale. But I have, Which is this still is a, a lot. It's this is a movie more I've than anything owned, I've seen. <laughs> I've owned on a taped-off TV copy, a VHS copy, a DVD the other edition of the DVD, and now the only remastered version, which is digital. Um, I've owned a lot of iterations of it, so there's been a lot of chances to see it. There's no Blu-ray, huh? Nope. Wow. No Laserdisc? Okay, there is a Laserdisc. I missed that. I think you got to get it just to complete I do, the collection. But then I'll have to get a Laserdisc player. <laughs> well, go to my old elementary school. It must still be okay, there. Okay, what's the address? <laughs> uh, one, two, three, four. While Woody, Chase Woody is writing down the address <laughs> of uh, the elementary school that Stevens recommended... I was going to ask you, Chase, one more question before we go to the ratings. And mm -hmm. this question would be, when you think of how deeply in love you are with this film, do you mostly associate it with Faye Dunaway's performance or being fan a fan of John Crawford? Or is it the amalgam of both? Overall, at the end of the day, if I had to cite a chief reason, even though I think there are many moving parts to my love for this movie, it is Faye Dunaway. In terms of like old Hollywood, I was always more of a Betty Davis fan. I think she's a better actress. I think her movies are more interesting. She was crazy in her own regard, but so Joan Crawford was never a huge draw. Uh, this movie could have been about any actress from that era, but if played in that manner by Faye Dunaway, I would have watched it regardless. So I'd say it's that, but I would also say that it's because 
she's brilliant in a movie that is, in my opinion, terrible, just in terms of how it's edited, uh, it's time flow, it's makeup, it's continuity. That's part of it too. Like there are movies that are camp, like the first Valley of the Dolls. That movie to me is boring because it's consistent. Mommy Dearest has something that stands out uniquely and distinctly. And whether it spoke to me as a closeted gay kid afraid of really being that larger than life or whether it was just a great performance that made me want to be an actor, there's something about Faye Dunaway that has always drawn me to that movie. Um, all right, Sasha, let's let's rate it. You mentioned maybe before we started recording that you have a an idea for a reference point for rating this movie. Yeah, I was just going to throw a couple of titles that I've brought up already at this point. I'm going to put Sunset Boulevard at a 10 mm. because even though it is like whatever between 4 to 11 Oscar nominations, I can't remember, but there's a ton of Oscar nominations and it's a masterpiece, right? That like I go back and rewatch every 5 years or so. Mm-hmm. Sunset Boulevard is in 1950, right? So we're yeah. talking 31 year before this film comes wow. out. So this is like maybe the beginning of exploitation because when did whatever happened to baby Jane come out 61 so yeah like Sunset Boulevard is early on and I, mm. that's a 10 and whatever happened to baby Jane I'm probably gonna that's the second movie I'm gonna put at the scale and I'm gonna put it at nine because I really love that film and which starred Joan Crawford and Betty Davis both people we've mentioned before yeah there's a a season of TV based on the making of that movie. Oh right? yeah, and I watched it. Feud. How does how does Feud? Sorry, Sasha, I don't want to throw you off too long. Oh, I am, I am, I'm on point. How is the depiction of Joan in Feud? How does it compare to the depiction of Joan in this? It's a quick history lesson. Both of them are based on books. Feud uh-huh. is based on one of the best show business books ever, which is called The Divine Feud: The Story of Betty and Joan. I recommend everyone read it, even if you don't care about them. So that is a book that focuses on their careers um, as they both rose up and came down from Hollywood. So you're also seeing a book that is focused solely on Joan as the star and a book that is then focused solely on Joan as the mother. They were Mm. fairly inextricable for a while, but the Joan that is presented in Divine Feud is a very put together Joan, a very classy, she writes thank you notes for thank you notes, like (laughs) perfect woman. And as played by Jessica Lange, she brilliantly captures the tone of Joan in that book. And I think that Christina's book, which in my opinion is either largely fabricated or solely vindictive. Um, and I don't give her a lot of credit. I think that Faye Dunaway did a brilliant job with the Joan of that book, which was much more over the top, unhinged, psychotic. Uh, you have a woman who has many different sides and those two stories tell fairly different sides of her story. There's not anything mentioned really of great focus in feud about um, the mommy dearest years Mm. or Christina. At what point in the timeline of mommy dearest does that production have? When do they make uh, whatever happened to baby Jane? That's a great question. And I've always wondered why that wasn't in the movie Mm. mommy dearest, because that was a big moment for Joan. It's it's kind of a comeback for her. Yeah. So when she wins that Oscar and they, she wins by the radio, it's after that it's after wire hangers. I would say, Baby Jane is probably right before Christina is gradual is getting kicked out of okay. Boarding school, so it's kind of happening in that time. You have no way of knowing exactly when it is, but it's somewhere in there. Okay, thank you. Of course, Sasha. Anytime. 
whenever you're ready. Oh, I'm coming right back. I was oh, yeah. just on pause. I, I can <laughs> easily do this. There's no problem here. So, yeah, if uh, Sunset Boulevard is at 10 and whatever happened to Baby Jane is at 9, and I'm actually going to bring in another movie yet. Like, I'm going to, like, load the scale with all kinds of stuff because I feel like this is really something I respond to is this, like, emotional broken women characters. Obviously, my mommy issues are on display, but that's what makes artists, right? Mm -hmm. I would also say, actually, Streetcar Named Desire. I mean, yes, sure, it's Tennessee Williams, but Blanche in that film from 1951, right, with Mar Marilyn Brando, famous film. I, again, watch it every three years or so. You know, it also deals with the demented sort of woman who is fading in both mental uh, capacity and her beauty, and she cannot handle it, and, you know, Shit happens. Bad shit happens in that film. But um, that's a 10 as well. With those masterpieces of cinema being at 9 and 10, I'm going to give... What is the name of the film? Mommy Dearest. Mommy Dearest. Eight and a half. Okay. All right. Eight and a half. I usually don't feel like I need to break the 10-point scale further. You don't need to bring out the half. The half. Wow. But I feel like even an eight is not fair because to me... The magnetic uh, freaking performance of Faye Dunaway and the young girl and those set pieces, right? There's so many yeah, set pieces that are so memorable. Like gorgeous. The set piece that your mind immediately goes to. like, And to me, that's something I emotionally respond to, like how powerful all those set pieces are, like the pool mm -hmm. scene, the carousel scene. Um, that staircase in the very middle of the house. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. dramatic. It's beautiful. It's just a lot of that, right? And it, and it's, it's not like gratuitous to me. It all works with what the fuck is going on inside her, right? If she's mentally ill. She's clearly borderline here. I mean, I'm not a psychiatrist to diagnose her. But all this stuff that's mentally going on with her, it's reflecting in her environment. And so I absolutely believe that this is how she would be acting a woman who is the queen of Hollywood, she's the royalty of Hollywood, and she's used to people, you know, I mean, the scene where she's surrounded by her admirers getting out of the car, and her boyfriend just sees her being so happy, surrounded by her fans, that he just steps away and leaves her alone, goes inside the restaurant by himself so she can have another minute of that enjoyment. This is the one time we really, truly see her happy, right? If you think in the whole film, she's genuinely smiling and she doesn't see anything else because she's in this fame that she works hard for, right? Like she talks about how she comes from nowhere and she achieves it all with her talent. And to me, like, I just love everything about that. Like to me, it's the themes that I respond to as, sto as a storyteller and as the audience member. So this is my jam is what I'm saying. That's why it's a fucking eight and a half. And who cares about editing or the biopic failings? Like, if anything, it gives you, like, a time to breathe and just to kind of wave it off so then you can focus on the monstrosity, the tremendous monstrosity, but in the beautiful sense of Faye Dunaway's performance. So what about you, Steven? Uh, yeah, okay. So we put Sunset Boulevard at 10. Also, maybe something like All About Eve, oh. which is also this huge a 12 dominated right yeah dominated by betty davis in that movie if those are tens um well okay let's talk about mommy dearest a little bit i think the first half is great faye dunaway's performance is you know i, I yeah i don't think it's a bad performance i think 
I Faye Dunaway when in response to the to the criticism of the movie in the years after it was released, she at times she she would criticize the director, Frank Perry, who I called Fred earlier. Sorry, listeners, don't write in. <laughs> Please write in. We need some emails. I want you to write in and just you say can anything. write in. You can write in. Just don't write in to say, "Oh, Stephen said his name was Fred Perry, but it's Frank Perry." But write in about anything else, literally, even if it has nothing to do with the show. So, what's written on Wikipedia is she said she wished Perry had enough experience to see when actors needed to rein in their mm-hmm. performances. I don't know if that's a direct quote. Probably not. Honestly, her performance really is she talking she, about. She said that in her autobiography, okay. not verbatim, but that sentiment that she wished he would have reined her in. But he, to me, Frank Perry is the person in this production who knows what it needs to be, right? He sounds he, a little auteur of you. Well, and I, I think the auteur theory is bullshit, but I think the yeah, right. I remember he, that he, you know, he at least found the right people to help him make the movie that he thought this should be right that opening montage is excellent the way that it's shot the way that it's edited obviously everything that Faye Dunaway is doing physically and that the first half of the movie kind of goes off of that energy and I just really wish that there was any of that in the second half of the movie because it's it's not even just the actress playing older Christina the energy of the movie is totally different because we're we're seeing more of Christina than we were before, and that means we're seeing less of Joan. So you're getting less of Faye Dunaway's performance. After the scene where Joan Crawford is strangling her daughter on the floor of her house... Her adult daughter. <laughs> there's never another big Joan scene after that, really. And I, I think the movie suffers for it. I think the back half of trying to squeeze the rest of her life in isn't doing it any favors overall i like the movie i enjoy the movie but i'm not i i I, i'm gonna give it i'm gonna give it a six because i like the first half more than i dislike the second half but the second half just feels like such a slog after watching the first half if the second half was like a half hour i think it would be good or if the movie found some conclusion where when christina is still a child I think that need to to put an hour of older Christina really hurts it in the end for me. Has she had a career since then, the Uh, actress? Diana Scarwood, she was nominated for a Supporting Actress Oscar about a year after. Oh, wow. The only thing you would probably remember her directly from is there was a Michelle Pfeiffer, Harrison Ford movie. What Lies Beneath? What Lies Beneath. She was Michelle Pfeiffer's either sister or best friend, a psychic. I'm not sure, but I just looked on Wikipedia, and it appears that she's only 10 years younger than Faye Dunaway. That tracks. Doesn't surprise me. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, Faye Dunaway was not that old when she made this movie. Late 30s. Interesting. Yeah, that's the highest I gave uh, in the 24 episodes that we've recorded, not published so far. So, spoiler alert, audience. (laughs) Spoiler alert. This is the the highest I've given. uh, It is. Okay, I wasn't sure. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I've given anything higher than a seven, and those were a couple of times. But just me, I just remember watching the first few seconds and being like, who is questioning this is a fucking great movie? This was me. And then that was a strong enough impression that I stayed with. And yeah, and like her acting was like an excuse. I mean, just there's an excuse for me to watch more mm. fade on away doing whatever she's doing then i don't care like how <laughs> bad the rest of it is so that's like true love you know that's true love what yeah. about you chase yeah your your opinion is the important one here thank you i 
will lay out my thoughts on the whole movie and then I'll give my number. I agree with you. I think that back half is not interesting, especially after their final feud in front of the reporter. Yeah. That's where I have less memories of the film, could tell you less about it. I do think that it is rightfully lauded as a bad movie and for the same reason that people gather together to watch The Room or any movie of that stature, people do the same with Mommy Dearest. They'll have mm. a night to get together. I find it offensive though I'm a fan of both. <laughs> You're, you fan, you're a fan of The Room? Well, exactly. But I'm a fan in the sense... That it's a bad movie, That though. it's a bad movie, that, Okay, right. that I can get. So, so I'm a huge fan of how bad that movie of course. is. But, but that's me- not how you feel about this exactly. movie. Exactly. So meaning to me, it's that crazy people, that people compare the two. I mean, I I, I still laugh, uh, as horrible as the concept is during the wire hanger scene. That said, if we are rating movies more on their cultural impact, if we enjoyed them... And kind of going back to this whole debate about something like The Green Room versus Mommy Dearest. Green Room. <laughs> Green Book. Green Room is a pretty Green good room. movie. Yeah. Too, R. Gory, R. too gory for me. R. Green R. Room. Yeah, Anton Yelchin. Anton Yelchin. Oh, one yeah, of the few awful. Russian actors yeah. in Hollywood. What Green a horrible room. story. Green Room should have won Best Picture last year. Anything should have won. I would have been okay with oh, that. So it, truly anything. Blue, what's the other film he made? It's always about Blue the color. Ruin. Blue, Blue Ruin. Blue Ruin. Oh, Blue Ruin. absolutely. Yeah. Okay. But if we are assessing this movie based on its impact and did it entertain us has it withstood the test of time i would actually go so far based mostly on faye dunaway to give the movie a nine great i think that its imperfections add up to about a one because no one (laughs) is watching this movie and i will say the movie is horribly edited the makeup is awful it is garish editor is getting a lot of heat and and it's not just the editor part of that is the director (laughs) yeah i I would love to see knowing how much of this was filmed i would love to see what's on the cutting room floor which i think is gone to us forever sure but i would give it a nine because it look at how long we've talked about it yeah and anytime I know no one who is ambivalent to this movie. No <laughs> True. One. Uh, yeah. Fair enough. And so great that Crash won Best Picture in 2005. <laughs> I would put that much lower on the scale of 1 to 10 first in lieu of something that still entertains us to this day, that still makes us talk, that sends us down the wiki trail of what happened on the set. Yeah. A nine. I'm all in. Great. Great. Steven, is there anything that you'd like to shut up and love? Yeah, uh, kind of in keeping with the the maybe new Hollywood roots of this film. You know, Faye Dunaway came to prominence in Bonnie and Clyde, which she starred in with Warren Beatty. Just last night, um, I watched a movie that certainly doesn't need promotion from me, but probably people in our age group haven't, many haven't seen the movie Shampoo. Starring yes. Warren Beatty. Love it. And I constantly reference to every script I write. I <laughs> it was, reference. Because it's like, what? What? Well, he's based on the real person. Jay Sebring, right. who was one of the victims of the Manson-Sharon Tate murders. Yes, right. Because yeah. Once Upon the Hollywood, right? Mm. This character's in it. Yeah. Uh, he's kind of based on him and also kind of based on um, Barbara Streisand's hairdresser, who then went mm-hmm. on to, be, to become a big studio exec. But, he, you know, Warren Beatty is playing this... Uh, hairdresser who who loves to fuck and uh the whole movie which i didn't How do you not fuck <laughs> well apparently warren beatty. warren beatty loved to fuck so. yeah. and then he stopped fucking right yeah. uh, well, well who knows fucking everyone right but i, I guess when you, i guess fucking. when you've dated madonna it's <laughs> tough to feel like you're the one fucking the most in the relationship <laughs> uh a thing that i did not realize before watching is that this is the kind of movie that takes place all in one day i did not know it was going to be that kind of movie and it takes place all 
on the day of the 1968 presidential election as this character's kind of lies and and schemes uh, and general um, unpleasantness all kind of catch up to him over the course of a single day. It's a really fun movie to watch. It's only the second Hal Ashby movie I've ever seen after Harold and Maude. I'm such a huge fan of the director. Um, yeah, and it, it was great. So I definitely recommend if you haven't seen it, shut up and love it. Sasha, how about you? Since we brought up uh, Blue Ruin and Green Room, mm-hmm. the accidentally. Works of Jeremy Saunier. Yeah, Saunier. So, I mean, you know, if you haven't seen these films, definitely do check them out. They're both fascinating, amazing films. Yeah. But even his most recent film that I think is not getting for some reason as much traction as the other two. It w- I think it's probably because it was released on Netflix. That probably didn't help. Yeah, but Hold the Dark. Hold mm. the Dark is the 2018 thriller directed by Jeremy Saunier. And Jeffrey Wright, correct? Jeffrey Wright and Alexandra Skarsgård. Oh. one of my faves. One of my faves, boys. And I'm not a, I'm not into blonde boys, but he's one of my faves. <laughs> he's one of my faves. He's a Tarzan type. Yes. And, uh, I mean, look, just check it out. It's, you know, me telling you the plot, it's, um, it's not going to uh, describe how much of a masterpiece it is. Anything he really directs, Jeremy's in here, it's freaking outstanding and very unique. This is the same kind of, like, tight thriller simple plot simple plot very much about characters and small town psychos i guess is another Mm. way that he's interested in what is the scary white trash version Mm. of enemy that a man has to stand up and defend his family against yeah you know them for some reason i never i probably because it didn't come out in theater i i it just kind of slipped from my so you haven't seen it i haven't seen that yeah well i I love i do recommend it and green and green room so yeah i might maybe i'll check that out tonight Chase, thank you so much for coming in. Is there anything you'd like to plug? Uh, gosh, you know. Um, Instagram or anything You can of that find sort? me on Instagram, yeah. It's... Your spin classes? Oh, sure. Oh, if you're please. in Eagle Rock or Glendale, or even if you're not and want to drive to them, I teach at Rev in Eagle Rock and Sync. Is that what they Glendale? go by, Rev now? I thought it was like Rev Cycle, but it's uh, Rev. It's, is well, because they have it? Pilates and high intensity and yoga. So I think that it's now just it's shorthand totally. is Rev. What a great place. Love it. What a great class. I took it. Who needs Soul Cycle, especially after they're like supporting uh, know, yeah. our president? What was your, Did you have a social media handle that you yeah. wanted to share? Uh, Instagram's probably the one I'm more active on, and that's M as in Mary, Chase, like the verb, McCown, as you correctly pronounced, M C C O W N M Chase McCown. All one word. What's the M? Matthew, my first name. Oh, but I've never gone by wow. it. It's not an actor thing. I was intentionally named. Chase is my middle name. Have you ever, but your parents call you Chase. Correct. Everybody does. Have you ever asked them why they didn't just make Chase your first name? Phonetically, they like double syllable, single syllable, double syllable. Chase Matthew McCowan sounds a little less, Hmm. doesn't flow as well as Matthew Chase McCowan. My mom has said in hindsight she wishes she hadn't, but I kind of like it. There are a handful of people who go by. It does her only regret about raising you <laughs> then she's the best mom which oh that was we my won't impression. get into that yeah <laughs> don't you don't you have shows at ucb as well i am there once a month for uh the agenda presents all skate the second saturday of each month seven o'clock the inner sanctum diversity centric showcase with improv sketch characters stand-up music uh you can submit to that if you'd like to the agenda improv at gmail.com we'd love to have you too great great steven where can our audience members 
or anybody. Even if you're not podcast listeners, there's audience <laughs> members of anything, I guess. Yeah. Any, Where can you see us? The audience members of Judge Judy can find yeah, us. Yeah, anybody. Uh, it's open to anyone. The second and fourth Thursday of every month, we put on the Direct-to-Video Awards at 9 p.m. at the Moving Arts Theater on Hyperion Avenue. It's free. There's usually water and beer. Come check it out. If you'd like to submit your team to play, you could. Uh, DTV submission at gmail.com. Thank you, Elizabeth Salud, for artwork. Thank you, Andrew Hayworth, for our music. Thank you, Carlton Gillespie, for promo videos. Thank you, Jay Hunter, for production assistance. And thank you for listening. Thank you.